Take your seats. <clears throat> Appreciate you uh, sharing your story. You know, it can be, it's so important for us to share our stories with each other, and it, it can be, uh, you know, intimidating. It can be scary sometimes, uh, especially in front of a whole group of people, but we're, a, we're meant to be a family, and this is something we try to foster is this sense of, this, this habit, and even not just in front of people, but as we're getting together in our daily lives, we should be sharing what God's doing in our lives and being willing to be humble and vulnerable uh, and recognize that, yes, we do need God. We always have needed God. Uh, and whether we were a nominal Christian and our lives don't really line up with that, I think a lot of people can relate to seasons like that. Um, or we try really hard to do good things, be good and, and, and look like a Christian, but we're kind of missing out on that intimacy and the relationship with God. In both cases, you're kind of missing out on the true uh, riches of of the relationship that you can have with God and how it can heal your relationships with, with others, your spouse. And, and Keegan, I do agree. I don't know. I shudder to think where I'd be without Ellie right now in my life. I'm sure God would be taking care of me either way, but, you know, uh, I can't imagine what I'd be if I weren't married. Um, so thank you again, guys. Um, one other quick announce, or no, so this, Ken did mention this. I just forgot there's a slide for it. Um, if you have questions about youth stuff, Isaac and Sarah is here today. If you have questions about that, uh, contact them. Um, so with that, we're going to go ahead and uh, get back into our uh, study in Matthew. We're to chapter 25 now today. So you want to find your places in Matthew 25. This chapter starts off with a parable, and... <laughs> The parable may seem rather odd to us. Um, it refers to a cultural context that's quite different from our own culture, even though it is somewhat relatable, um, as we can see once we get into it. Um, it's about a wedding. Oh, and by the way, I forgot to say earlier, Happy Mother's Day. To, or no, I did say it for the music, but I didn't say it on camera. So for the record, uh, Happy Mother's Day. So last week, uh, Mike had the, the privilege and the honor um, that he really enjoyed of going through the passage that covers the abomination of desolation, right? That really interesting phrase. Um, he wasn't really thrilled about having that passage to uh, preach through. Uh, I guess it's kind of a challenging passage that he had to tackle last week. Um, and I guess he was more than happy for me. He made a comment at the end for take, for, to take this passage on the ten virgins. I guess he thought that you know, sounded like another challenging passage. And I joked with him, well, it's Mother's Day, so I'm just going to do like a holiday message. I'm just going to talk about mothers. And you can pick up with the Ten Virgins next week, right? So no, I'll just find something else. You're doing the Ten Virgins. So I'm, I've got this passage. I think it's a great passage. I had really no choice but to tackle it, but I think it's, it's awesome. Um, once we do a little bit of the cross-cultural work of overcoming those barriers, the challenges of understanding what's going on here, it's really a pretty practical parable, and it has a lot of um, encouragement and edification to it. Um, so a little bit of background, if you haven't been with us recently in Matthew, this passage in 25 is picking up in the middle of a discourse that, that began back in chapter 24. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. It's towards the end of his ministry. They're in Jerusalem, or they're just outside of Jerusalem, and this is just before he's about to be betrayed, arrested, crucified. It's his last kind of push of 
uh, presenting some teachings to his disciples. And he's made it very clear so far in his teaching. Um, he's been talking about the end times, right? His return. He's getting ready to leave the earth, but assuring them he will return. His disciples want to know, well, how do we know? When is it going to happen? Jesus says, well, here's a few things, some signs that you'll, you know, it'll remind you that it is happening, but no one's going to know the time. Don't even try to guess when it's going to happen. Don't try to calculate it. Um, you don't, you can't really comprehend the way God sees time and, and his plan. Um, so he's also talked about some things that may have been already fulfilled within, you know, after a few decades of Jesus speaking these words. Um, the temple was destroyed. Jerusalem was, was destroyed. Um, so there are a few things that may have been fulfilled already, other things that we today still haven't uh, seen happen yet. And so there's a lot of complexity, a lot of layers. Jesus is talking about, you know, the now, the not yet, the already not yet. He's using all kinds of different imagery. And as usual, as is typical of Jesus, he's going to be using parables. Um, so he's been using, he's told a couple parables already. They help to explain these complex concepts in relatable terms, <laughs> relatable at least to who he was talking to at the time. Um, again, we'll have to try to do a little bit of work to make it more relatable to us. Um, but yeah, today's parable is going to be diving into a pretty complex concept, but using a day-to-day -day, uh, example. So let's just read together through the first few verses of 25. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the groom. Five of them were foolish, five were wise. When the foolish took their lamps, they didn't take oil with them, but the wise ones took oil in their flasks with their lamps. When the groom was delayed, they all became drowsy and fell asleep. In the middle of the night, there was a shout. Here's the groom, come out to meet him. And all the virgins got up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise ones, Oh, give us some of your oil, because our lamps are going out. The wise ones answered, No, there won't be enough for us and for you. Go instead to those who sell oil, buy some for yourselves. When they had gone to buy some, the groom arrived, and those who were ready, who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the rest of the virgins also came and said, Master, Master, open up for us. He replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, be alert, because you don't know either the day or the hour. All right, so first let's just kind of untangle what exactly is happening in this, this parable. It's a story that makes reference to a, a very common tradition at the time, a wedding banquet, a wedding celebration. But of course, their specific wedding customs look a little, looked a little bit different than ours do today. Think about the concept of marriage, of two people uh, being unified in marriage. It's pretty much a culturally universal concept, whereas how exactly it's implemented from culture to culture, how it's uh, commemorated, celebrated, marked, uh, is pretty much as varied as humanity itself. There's all kinds of different ways of celebrating it. The concept of the reunion of heaven and earth of God and humanity and of families with each other is a very parallel concept to marriage, right? And that's the whole mission of Jesus is to reunite humanity with God and to restore their relationships with each other as well. So 
Jesus is often referred to as a groom, the church as his bride. So using this wedding or a wedding banquet to describe the kingdom of God, we've seen this before. That's not a new concept. It's not a new metaphor to describe the kingdom. It's a recurring theme, but we have some interesting details in this one. It's these virgins and their lamps. These are the specific details that are a little less familiar to us. So I want to talk about those for a minute. And to understand this, partly it's just the technology is different, but you also have to understand how uh, weddings worked back then. So I just want to go over a little bit about what a wedding would look like. So after the period of betrothal, which could last um, a person's whole life from when they were born, if they were betrothed at birth, or as a child to someone else, but depending on how long the betrothal was, it could be very long compared to our um, engagements. Uh, But once that was finished, all the agreements had been reached. They'd agreed to what, you know, what each party's going to pay and what everyone's going to, you know, how everyone's going to make out with the wedding. The wedding itself typically would extend over a period of five to seven days. So basically a whole week would be the wedding celebration. Pretty, pretty cool. Autumn was the favorite time for marriage because autumn is the harvest season, the the vintage would be over, minds would be free, hearts at rest, and it would be a season where the evenings would be cool and more comfortable to sit up late at night, um, and usually it involved the whole village coming together for the the wedding. It's a big event. At the beginning of the wedding, uh, in the evening, the bridegroom would be accompanied by his friends, and he would go to fetch his betrothed from her father's house. He would wear splendid clothing, and sometimes even a crown. A procession was formed under the direction of one of the bridegroom's friends, who acted as the master of ceremonies and remained by his side throughout the rejoicing. You can picture this, this, bride, or this groom with a crown on his head, looking like a king coming in to fetch his beloved. I mean, how, how similar of an image is that to Jesus, the coming king, coming to save his bride, the church, right? I mean, it's, when you see the the imagery, it's even better when you look at it in its con- the cultural context. So the beautifully dressed bride would then be carried in a litter and in procession, and all along the way people would sing traditional songs, and a lot of these songs would be drawn from the Song of Songs, or the Song of Solomon uh, in Scripture. Like, who is this coming up from the wilderness like a column of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and incense made from all the spices of the merchant? That's from Song of Songs. When the procession reached the bridegroom's house, his parents bestowed a traditional blessing drawn from uh, scripture and other sources. After the prayers, the evening was passed in games and dancing, and the bridegroom took part in the festivities. The bride, however, withdrew with her bridesmaids and her friends to another room. So this could be the, the stage at which we're, you know, finding them in the parable. The next day was the wedding feast, and once again, there was general rejoicing and a sort of holiday in the village. Towards the end of the day, there was a meal at which the men and the women were served separately, and this was the time for the giving of presents. The bride, dressed in white, was surrounded by her bridesmaids, usually ten of them. During this time, in the evening, the groom arrived. While, this exact, while the exact ritual words are not known, there seems to be a dialogue between the bride and groom. So there's kind of like the I do moment of our, our weddings. This would be where they kind of say something back and forth. Uh, And again, we have something in the Song of Songs similar to this, where the bride says, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is like perfume poured out. 
No wonder the young women love you. Take me away with you. Let's hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. And the groom responds with, Arise, come, my darling, my beautiful one. Come with me, my dove in the clefts of the rock, in the hiding places on the mountainside. Show me your face. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. That's pretty, it's pretty intimate and, and passionate. I think it's Makes our wedding seem kind of boring sometimes, actually. All right, so that's kind of the, the tradition that they're, they're waiting for the groom to come. Um, this, what I just read here, describing it, it's calling them bridesmaids, right? So why in Matthew does it call them virgins? What's with this word virgin? It's kind of weird. Uh, we don't use that word a, a lot, or we use it for very specific reasons today. Um, the technical definition of the word, it's the same. Uh, in the Greek and the Hebrew, a uh, virgin is just a, a woman who has not been with a man. But in both Hebrew and Greek, when you see it in Scripture, the word can be used in a more, a, a more varied uh, context than what we use it in. So if you look at the dictionary, Bible dictionary definition, it's generally a woman of marriable age, with or without focus on technical virginity, could be translated as girl. So it's really just a young woman, a young lady, a young girl. Um, it's kind of a, a synonym for that. So in our, our culture, we wouldn't call bridesmaids virgins because uh, that would sound weird. We just call them bridesmaids. But in this context, it's not much different than just calling them bridesmaids. And even that word, bridesmaid, that word maid means someone who's not married, right? Which isn't always the case with bridesmaids today. We just call them bridesmaids. Although I guess if the maid of honor is married, then they're a matron of honor, um, if you want to get technical. But that's not really the point, right? Whether or not they're married, whether or not they're virgins, no, they're, they're just friends of the, the bride. They're there to help with the wedding. So that's who these, these virgins are. Um, it's not, the focus of this is not on whether or not they're married or their sexuality. It's the role that they played in the larger context of the wedding. These are, you know, they're at the very least, they're guests of the wedding, um, but they're probably friends and, and or servants, attendants. They're supposed to be helping out with the bride. They're active. They're supposed to be active participants in the festivities. And all 10 of them, there's 10, right? And that's, that was typical for there to be 10 of them. It's a pretty big wedding party. Uh, they're all expecting the bridegroom to come, but only five of them are actually prepared. What's the difference between the prepared and the unprepared? It comes down to what? Oil. Whether or not they have oil for their lamps. Um, so I have a few photos of what these lamps would have looked like. Because if, if you just handed me any of these and said, what is this? I would not say lamp if I had not already, you know, already looked this up. Um, they just don't look like our lamps. But archaeological excavations have provided lots of examples like this. So what would happen is um, the ones on the left are kind of more of a closed design that were more towards the time of Rome. Uh, the ones at the top right are more of the classic, old, ancient, ancient, thousands of years style. And the one on the bottom is kind of in between. But they're all kind of the same concept. They hold oil, whether it's just a bowl or more enclosed. And then there's kind of a little spot for the, the wick, which would just be like a piece of thread, or not thread, but a wick in the oil. Um, and that's, that's what they would look like. So they, they would have to have oil on hand to, to keep moist. If it dried up, then there would be no fuel for the light source. They'd be used for indoor lighting to make sure you could 
sea at night. Um, now, when I say oil, when I, it's an oil lamp, right? When I say oil lamp, is this what you think of? You maybe think of one of these. <laughs> like on the left, that's the kind that genies live in, right? That's not what we're talking about. Um, the right is one that's kind of a more modern take on an oil lamp. I know my mom always loved these. I don't know if she still does. There's, it's kind of an aesthetic. It's this old school kind of, it has a flame in it that actually burns. So it kind of gives you an ambiance. Um, those are kind of cool. But anyway, yeah, this is what one of the, the clay ones looks like when it's actually burning. So if you want to picture, that's just what they had to see by. And if, I guess I didn't actually go too deeply into this. Uh, but I assume they needed lamps in order to get into the party, right? Now, the, the specific details are not what the point of the parable is, right? It's, hard, it's important not to stretch too far and, and read into every detail. Okay, well, if it was made of clay, then it means this, and the light means this, and, uh, well, depending on which type of oil they use, maybe the oil symbolizes this or that. Um, that's not what parables are meant for, right? The parables explain a bigger picture concept using relatable, relatable concepts. Uh, that said, I, I doubt it's a coincidence that lamps were used versus anything else, because it seems like an arbitrary object, right? Lamp, why lamps? Lamps are used to represent the readiness of these women, right? Whether or not they were actually ready to go to the banquet. And I think that's, there's no way it's coincidental because lamps and light in general, are often used symbolically throughout the Old and New Testaments to depict life and abundance, um, divine presence and glory and holiness. Jesus, in especially the Gospel according to John, is depicted very frequently as being the light of the world. And his disciples, as Jesus even has said back in chapter 5 during the Sermon on the Mount, he describes his disciples as being the lights to the world. 5.14, Jesus says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. No one hides a light under a lamp, or no one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but on the lampstand and gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. So in that sense, I would say that these lamps in this parable could certainly be seen as representing the visibility of our faith, whether or not our light can be seen as an indicator um, as to whether or not we truly are in a posture of readiness for the coming day of judgment and the return of our Savior. Now, I suppose the most applicable and practical question that we could take away from this parable is to simply ask ourselves, uh, am, am I ready? Are you ready for Christ to return? And what does that even mean to be ready? What does it mean to be ready for Jesus? Do we need to have oil for oil? Does anyone actually own an oil lamp, any lamp that runs on? Do you like the look of those? Is it, is it like that one that I showed? The glass one, the glass one yeah. So you're ready for Jesus. So you have oil for your lamp, don't you? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Oh, so we might have oil lamps. That's obviously not what this parable is saying, is that we need to have oil lamps in order to be ready for Jesus. 
Right? It's, it doesn't have so much to do with, with physical readiness, having any specific objects prepared or doing a specific ritual. Right? It's more of an internal state of our hearts and our minds and an attitude of, of readiness and eagerness, excitement. Not of, of laziness and, ah, you know, he'll, he'll come when he comes. Probably not for a while. I'm fine for a while. You know. Or even, even worse, of evasiveness, of not wanting him to come, of wanting to run away, having the, the reaction of Jonah, of wanting to flee from God's presence because he doesn't want to witness uh, his, his compassion and mercy. And in that sense, I guess, for me, it's helpful to understand what it means to be, to be ready it's helpful to kind of think, okay, well, what does it look like to not be ready, right? So these five bridesmaids were not ready. Jonah was like the opposite of, of ready, right? He ran away. And if you ask yourself right now, right now you're probably feeling good because you're sitting in church, but at any given moment, would you be embarrassed or frightened or, or ashamed if Jesus just walked up and, and sat down next to you? and knew everything you were thinking and about to say and do. And he said, hey, let's go for a walk with the Father through the garden. Let's walk and talk and, and you know, would, would your first instinct be to run towards his voice? Say, yes, I want to spend time with you. Or to run away and hide in shame like Adam and Eve did in the garden. I want to actually read from Genesis 3. I know we probably read this a lot. But if you want to turn with me to Genesis 3, I'm going to read um, starting in verse 6. I think this is one of the best examples of what it looks like, the first example of what it looks like to not be prepared for God's presence and to have the wrong reaction. They kind of set the stage and this is um, kind of the tragedy, the tragic truth of humanity is that we have this, because of sin, we have an innate fear um, of God's holiness Genesis 3, 6 says, The woman saw that the tree was good for food, the one that Yahweh told him not to eat. It was a delight to the eyes. The tree was desirable to make one wise. So she took from its fruit and ate and gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. The eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of Yahweh God walking in the garden in the wind of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh God in the midst of the trees in the garden. Yahweh called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, well, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, well, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave to me from the tree, and I ate. Yahweh God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, Well, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So you can see the, the reaction. In a sense, you could say it was an appropriate reaction. They realized their sin, and they were ashamed of it, and they, they hid from God. But it was a, a tragic symptom of the reality that they had introduced this corruption into their lives. And there is a healthy measure of fear that should come with the prospect of us, our sinful, contaminated lives coming into contact with the almighty, perfect holiness of, 
of God, knowing that those two things are just not compatible as is. So if there's a, an innate hesitance to approach God, or if the thought of Jesus joining us in our day-to-day activities and conversations, if that makes us a little bit squirmy, like, oh, I don't know if I'd want Jesus seeing me every minute that I'm at work, every day, and all the things I say to my coworkers. Uh, that could be, you know, to an extent, a healthy awareness of how desperately we do fall short every day of His glory and His standard. Uh, Romans 3.23, of course, right? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's probably the most best-known, concise statement of this fact. Everyone is in this boat. But this is, this is probably the most quoted, but it's not the only one. This is a fundamental truth that's core to the whole message of scripture. So I have a whole bunch of them just to drive this point home. It's, it's core to the whole message and the worldview of Jesus. So everything that he's teaching about, it's important to understand that it's coming from this understanding too. So if you go back to Isaiah, a prophet in the Old Testament, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Yahweh has caused the iniquity of us all, but Yahweh has called the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Referring to the Messiah. Jeremiah 17.9 The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can know it? Psalm 51.5 This one is really kind of depressing, especially with all the babies being born now. <laughs> Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. And this is, if you look at the context, you know, it's, it's really the, the greater perspective of from birth really is, is we're born into this this world of, of sin and corruption and one more ecclesiastes 7:20. indeed there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins nobody never sins so yes in that sense it is appropriate to recognize that on our own we would be completely unworthy to be in god's presence for eternity and recognizing that is the first step to recognizing how significant it is that we're not on our own. How significant it is that Jesus did come to provide a solution. It's, just, it's not until that we realize that we are powerless on our own that we can truly surrender to the power of, of God in our lives. And as it turns out, we, we don't have to be ashamed in the presence of God. We don't have to shudder in horror at the thought of Jesus joining us, which is good because we know that really His Spirit is with us at all times, right? Whether or not we like to think about it. And yes, we'll always be a work in progress during this life, but the encouragement is that Jesus is here to come alongside us, to help us, to encourage us, to challenge us, to lift us up, not to sneer at us from his high throne in heaven, not to whisper condemnations in our ears and just make us feel guilty about our past and every little thing we do wrong. No, he's telling us he loves us, he's proud of us, he cherishes us, and he wants us to thrive in him and live abundantly in him and surrender to him so that we can experience true joy and fulfillment in this life. John 3.16, again, very quoted passage. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. 
For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. That verse is revealing kind of the core primary mission of Jesus. Yes, he calls out sin and corruption, and there's this, he's been in this kind of prophet mode where he's calling out all of the, the things that the Jews have done wrong. But at, at his core, remember, he's all about saving his children who he loves. And it's because of Christ that we can approach with confidence our Creator. And not with arrogance. There's a difference between confidence and arrogance. Confidence is, I know I deserve to be zapped like a fly, but instead, I know that you have declared me to be your child, and I know that you love me, and I know that you will not do anything to harm me, but rather uh, to lift me up. Versus arrogance is, oh yeah, I, I deserve this. I've done everything right. I, I better get into heaven. You know, if, if not, then, you know, this is quite the scam. That's, <laughs> that's arrogance. With humility and, and gratitude, but also the assurance of our, our security in Christ. Who, again, Christ's presence is here. His presence is with us. He's in this room among us in the person of, of the Holy Spirit. He's our spokesperson. He's our legal representation. He's our lawyer in the courtroom of judgment. And he's never lost a case. So as confident as we can be in our own conviction, or that we should be, you know, convicted, as certain as we are that we deserve a death sentence, we can be just as certain that Jesus has delivered the opposite. We can have complete confidence. Songs where it's with humility and, and gratefulness, great gratitude, uh, that we're secure in Him. So I'm going to leave you with uh, five takeaways, because right? I haven't done that in a while. And this, actually, I found it to be an extremely practical passage. You know, once you get past the, the, the virgin word, you know, it's, it's really pretty cool. Parable. Um, so first, you know, I, I got you five, five takeaways. First is preparation. These are kind of things that should describe our posture towards the kingdom, how we should be um, preparing. This is what it looks like to, to be ready for, for the returning, uh, the coming of, of Jesus. The foolish virgins in the parable were not prepared, and they were shut out the wedding feast. So we have to be prepared by being in a right relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Again, this is nothing we do by doing good things. It's through Jesus. So it's much more than outward appearances, religious activities, and rituals. It's a genuine faith and a consistent commitment to following Jesus Christ. Though none go with you, still following. Like the wise virgins or bridesmaids who brought their extra oil along, we should be ready to meet Jesus at any moment. In fact, it's a good exercise to think at any given moment. You know what? If Jesus was in his body, physically standing here right now, would I be ashamed of what I'm doing or saying right now? And reminding yourself, you know what? He is with me right now. <laughs> How do I feel about that? It's easy to forget when um, he's not visibly in our face telling us uh, what to do. But um, We have to be also willing to endure and persevere through the not-so-fun times, challenges and trials of life. This is a matter of eternal significance and should be a top priority in our lives because ultimately nothing else matters anymore. 
It's not that we should ignore this, this world or this life. Uh, we should be present in every given moment, but also realize that uh, there's, there's so much more to this life. All right, secondly, faithfulness. Uh, so the wise bridesmaids, they were, they were faithful and they were, they were rewarded with a place at the, the wedding feast. Uh, so what does it look like to be faithful? Other than, uh, it, you know, focusing on a relationship with him and, and prayer and time studying scripture. What it means to be faithful, again, it's, it's the, the first one, preparation, um, I said it's not about outward appearances, right? But then if you have an internal faithfulness that is an active, genuine faithfulness, it will come out in what you do. So it's an internal, personal state of being, but it has external, visible, effectual results. It affects, uh, it produces fruit. That's the evidence of our faith. So if we focus on being faithful and of having an attitude of, of preparing for Christ's return, and I think the rest kind of comes, uh, comes more easily. So third, uh, this parable teaches about patience. The whole reason they ran out of oil in the first place was because the, the groom was delayed, right? And then the foolish ones were like, oh, well, he's not coming. Forget about it, right? Where the wise ones, they had faith um, and they were patient that the, the groom would return. They, they remained patient. Um, it's a quintessential fruit of the Spirit. If you think of the fruits, love, joy, peace, patience. You know, it's, it's one of those that's really hard to learn, too, because God will teach us patience if we ask for it. And it's not fun. Uh, but we do know that He will come again. And sometimes, it's been 2,000 years plus, right? So what happened? Did He forget about us? No. They were already saying this um, when the New Testament was written, that uh, we know that he will come again. He's not, he's not delaying like it may seem to us. And in the meantime, we, we just need to focus on continuing to live our lives for him because it really doesn't change anything. Whether he were to come tomorrow, today, or in a thousand years really shouldn't change much about how we live, right? It's not, if he were to come tomorrow, does that mean that I would live any differently? Well, maybe tomorrow, yeah, but... <laughs> Not really, you know, ultimately at its core. Mike, Mike talked about that a bit last week. So fourth one is confidence. We just talked about this. So humble, grateful confidence. There's, a, there's an assurance that we never have to wonder about whether or not we'll be accepted into God's family. And most of us will go through a time uh, of being either offended or hurt or rejected, not accepted by someone, whether our, our human families or friends or enemies, you know, we all experience this. And in God's family, that's one place we never have to experience that. The wise virgins were, were confident that the bridegroom would come, even though he was delayed. And we can be confident uh, that Jesus will return. And then finally, fifth is that humility, just a reminder that we have to be humble. Um, the wise virgins, you know, they didn't boast. They didn't gloat over the foolish ones when the five were like, oh, can we please have some of your oil? They're like, sorry, no. And they gave them some advice. You know, you could go buy some. We don't have enough, but you can go buy some. They're not gloating. Um, and we, we have to be, be humble. As much as we're, we should be thrilled at the privilege and the honor of being 
uh, called a child of God. We also shouldn't let it go to our heads. We've got to be humble about it. So I guess the, to sum up um, the message for this passage for today, it's, to, uh, it's just a reminder to always be prepared for Christ's return, um, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, asking yourself, am I ready? Am I looking forward to it? Even if it seems a long way off, even if we may uh, not really see the, the end in sight. And let us always, uh, at the same time, um, thinking of these, these lamps and, and the oil. You know, if there were to be, and I get this is just kind of a, a silly analogy, but if there were an oil uh, analogy, it would be the, uh, just the light of the Spirit in our lives and of spending time in, in Scripture and in prayer and in fellowship with each other. These are the things that fuel our uh, spirituality, is spending time in relationship with God and with, with others um, so let's uh, not ever be in danger of running low on, on that fuel. We don't have to be. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, um, I just thank you for this uh, beautiful day and again uh, for the incredible mothers who uh, make this world go round and for a day to celebrate them. I pray that uh, many families here and around the world will uh, just be able to bless their their moms and in a in a beautiful way today. As we reflect on this parable uh, in in Matthew, we're just thinking about the the importance of being ready for you, um, being prepared for the return of Christ. And so I just pray that this would encourage us to live in a way that would reflect you, reflect our faith in you, and that we always not just ready, but excited to to meet you when you return. Give us the wisdom and and discernment in our lives to prioritize uh, you and and our spirituality above anything else. Uh, We pray that we would be able to be counted among those who are wise, who are ready, who had fuel uh, to enter the wedding. And we know that by your grace and by your mercy, you've you've given us the, the gift of the Holy Spirit so that we never will run dry. May your spirit just continue to guide us and empower us and fill us with love and and lead us in service to one another um, and just polish us into lights that we can be light in the darkness and and a witness to who you are. And let your peace fill us uh, and and guard our, our hearts and our minds in you. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ.